Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. This episode features Andrew Walker. Andrew Walker's been on the pod a couple times. You should know him from Yet Another Value Podcast, Yet Another Value Blog, and the Yet Another Value Empire. He stopped by to discuss, he was fairly public on, well, he was very public on the Spirit merger. It didn't work out. I pinged him. I said, do you want to have a conversation about what it's like to be public on an idea and not have it go the way that you wanted it to? wrote me back. He said, I'm ready to rub my face in it. We hopped on the mic. Then you get a pitch for Calumet, which happens to be SAF related. This will not become a SAF pod, but Andrew wanted to talk about it and I was down to do it. So this is what you get. This episode is sponsored by DeLupa. DeLupa is founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity into the investment process. DeLupa offers an AI-driven single source for all company-reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. DeLupa scales the velocity of an investment team's idea generation. Analysts spend less time locating and manually inputting meaningful disclosures into Excel and more time synthesizing in the minutes after the print. DeLupa captures data from all company-reported sources, including from footnotes, MD&As, and investor presentations. Delupa's data sheets include gap to non-gap adjustments, guidance, and all company-specific KPIs. Each data point is auditable to the source for easy verification and accuracy. Delupa's Excel plugin can also update your existing models for the latest quarter in just a single click. Bulge bracket banks and major multi-managers are trusting Delupa for their use in initiating coverage, building and maintaining industry dashboards, and keeping their models up to date. Visit delupa.com forward slash business brew to create a free account and learn more about how Delupa can increase your team's speed to differentiated insight. As always, nothing in this show is financial advice. Please consult an investment advisor before making investment decisions. Everything in this show is for entertainment purposes and educational purposes. And do your own due diligence. Right. Andrew Walker, friend of the show, been on a couple times. I pinged you after your experience of spirit and what I saw going on the interwebs. And, you know, it brought me back to my curate days, man. And I just didn't know if you wanted to chat a little bit about what it's like to be public or what it was like to have the idea not go your way or whatever. And you said, you know, I, I'm finally ready to rub my nose in it. I don't know that I'm interested in having that conversation. I think what you do is excellent. I am a happy sub. And, you know, sometimes things go ways that we didn't anticipate. So however you want to have the conversation, I'm down to have it. And if it stinks, we'll cut it. But I have a feeling it won't. No, look, I appreciate that. I appreciate you having me on to publicly humiliate <laughs> me. It's, it's nice of you. <laughs> There's a lot of ways like I, I've been having I really want to write more stuff on the blog. I, I've been having writers block like it's tough. It was one of the biggest losses of my career. I was really confident in the case. We can talk about like betting on binaries versus big companies odds and everything. But yeah, it was hard. And I, I was just trying to assess and you know, I, I it's really hard because I was very public on this. Uh, you know, I think on my podcast, I did probably five pods on this. I just thought if 
thought this was a really good swing. And I don't know if it's resulting. The Bears were right. Like, I, I just thought the Bear case was weak, but it turned out they were right. And we can talk about all sorts of things. But, yeah, you know, I, I thought it was time to come out of my shell, despite the fact I've grown my homeless beard for people who are watching <laughs> the video and stuff. And, you know, I talk about it. I don't know. It'll, it'll, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. It'll be a little humiliating. Well, I don't think you need to be humiliated. I think sometimes things happen. I, I do think an interesting concept is the idea of betting on binaries. I mean, you hear Buffett say, I'd bet a lot of money on a coin flip if the odds were right. And sometimes I wonder how serious he takes that statement. You know, there's a lot of what's a lot of money. Would you bet the risk of ruin? You know, kind of like, how do you, how is this if it has evolved your thinking on betting on sort of judgments or binary outcomes, how, how do you think going forward it may change what you do, if at all? I don't know because, look, I thought there was a 70% chance of spirit winning. And actually, I would say one of the nice things was talking to – I talked to so many antitrust people and all of them, whether they were spirit bulls or bears, said, hey – in an antitrust case, you can't go more than 70% because you're dealing with one person who is not an antitrust expert. You know, people would compare this to Twitter and a lot of people because kind of the same gang rode for Spirit that rode for Twitter versus Elon. And I heard a lot of people be like, oh, you know, Finch went and these people got really lucky with Twitter and then they, you know, they got too far over their skis and they got hit on this new one. And I think the difference is with Twitter, you had one judge, in this case, the chancellor in Delaware, Kathleen McCormick, who... All she does, basically all she does is Delaware corporate law. So she is extremely well-versed in there, and you can read 20 opinions of her that are directly pertaining to this case, right? Whereas in Spirit, the reason everybody says you can't bet so hard on antitrust is it is one judge who, despite the fact I think his ruling is abysmal, he is smart, he is a thinking judge, but he's never dealt with antitrust before. He's an 82-year-old judge, and this was his first antitrust case that had gone to trial. And when you deal with someone like, you know, if you're an investor and you make your first investment, 10 years later, you're going to go look at your first investment and be like, what the fudge was I thinking? Like, this wasn't a good investment. This is first antitrust case. If he was, you know, if he was 30 years old and he was going to try 20 more of them, I think, you know, after his 21st case, you'd go back and look at the first case. If it was this one and be like, what was I thinking? That wasn't right. But you know, you're dealing on one judge first time and you can't go over 70%. Anyway, that's the odds. You know, I was 70% on spirit only because people told me you can't be more than 70%. And that was good advice in hindsight. But the market was pricing this at 30 to 40% to go through. There was huge upside here, right? A lot of people said, of course, it was going to fail. It was a widespread. And I said, yeah, that's why I was so interested because the market had this at 30 to 40%. I did 70. Run that in a Kelly formula and Kelly would be like, sell your dog, sell your kidney, mortgage everything, bet bet your whole bankroll on this. I didn't do that because the world has fatter tails than that. But, you know, it was worth a big swing to me. And yeah, it sucks we were wrong, but I, I think it was good process. Yeah, well, which begs the question, you know, it, now that you've sat with it for a little while, do you believe that you were wrong or do you think the outcome just went against you? No, look, it, it's tough. Again, the market priced something at 30% that I thought was 70%. So it's really tough. A lot of people say, oh, you're wrong. Well, that's resulting. If we ran this 100 times, I still think I would have been right more than wrong. I will say there were things that were happening in the trial that I remember Lionel Hutz. I sent him some – I would think about this every night. I sent him some panic emails. There were some clues in the trial to which way the judge was leaning that I dismissed that maybe I should have thought more. 
in particular, there was one quote where he basically said, hey, I've got all this evidence of harm. What should I do with this evidence of harm? And I was like, Lionel, we've disproven evidence of harm. Like, what are you talking about? What is this guy talking about? And both of us came to the conclusion he was kind of like setting up a hypothetical for mm. his question. But in hindsight, there was that. And there was one or two other things he said. But yeah, I don't know. Like, I look at his ruling and I can read his ruling. And the two things I always felt very confident of was, one, you could not rule. One of the government's big arguments was, and this gets really weedsy, so maybe this is too much for a podcast that's not like diving into weeds here, but the two things I felt most common to us was, one, the government keeps saying, Spirit is an ultra-low-cost carrier. JetBlue cannot buy them because Spirit is an ultra-low-cost carrier and they foreclose on that market. That's not antitrust. And I thought that argument, and JetBlue made this argument in their defense, if you agreed with that argument, that sets up a really scary door where the government can start saying, hey, this is a protected business model. Even though there's no antitrust issues here, we choose this business to be protected. And from an antitrust standpoint, that's a disaster, right? The government's making calls on their own and saying, no, that's off limits. And eventually that will come into play where, you know, you might be less likely to start a low cost anything because, you know, in the end, the government says, these guys are protected. You cannot sell them. So people say, oh, there's no profit on the back end. Like, you know, what JetBlue wanted to do, I guess I'll back up. I can ramble forever. It, what JetBlue wanted to do was take Spirit and upgrade all of Spirit's planes, right, to JetBlue planes. And if you watch late night TV, you know Spirit's the butt of every joke for poor service and how they cram people in like sardines. JetBlue said, we're going to change that. We're going to change the business model. We really want to buy these airplanes and change the business model. And what the government said was not that this was an antitrust issue in terms of you'll have too much market share, right? United has 20% of the market. Delta had 20% of the market. JetBlue and Spirit together would have like 10%. What they said was you're buying a ULCC and that's just not allowed. Well, Spirit could make the decision to go to JetBlue's business model all on their own, right? Like they could do that themselves. Why can JetBlue not buy them? Why could like Elon Musk could buy them tomorrow and turn their whole fleet into private jets? Why JetBlue specifically can't do this is beyond me. Huh. Spirit is one example, but, you know, in this case, I could imagine a scenario where the craziest example I could give is if Louis Vuitton came out tomorrow and said, hey, we want to buy the dollar stores. We want to buy Dollar General and turn them into the $100 General, right? There's no antitrust issue there. But now the government could say, oh, no, actually, you can't do that. We like the dollar store model as is. Like, these guys are frozen in place. And you could just imagine, like... Now the government has the right to anyone, any business they like, any business they want to protect, they can block it off. And that actually encourages people not to invest into low cost models because there's no exit on the back end. The government's going to say, no, we like this as a standalone, even if it's losing money. The only way to exit is restructuring asset sale. And like Spirit might be a restructuring or asset sale in the long run. So that was one. And then number two, just the other reason I'm so disappointed in it is the judge said, hey, I find Dr. G, I find him a very credible witness, despite the defendants raising really solid objections to some of his stuff. And the defendants' objections were, hey, this witness used faulty data. If you look at his model, he intentionally changed the model to only reflect what he wanted it to do. He cut off the ends, which would have made his model look crazy, like there's all these issues with his model. So they were basically saying he is a uncredible witness. And the judge said, credible witness, despite the defendants pointing out huge issues with his model and data. So I, I just thought that was kind of crazy. I, I couldn't see him ruling that given those two issues. Yeah, it's funny because I felt like my first take 
on this case was that they shouldn't remove a ULCC. And then I started to research more about, you know, how much that like divestitures that they were open to. And I was like, oh, well, this will probably get done. But it seems like almost the my gut emotional reaction of a ULCC should not be taken out was what ultimately won over what I think was pretty well argued reasoning. Yeah, look, this goes back to all the antitrust people saying you can't bet on one person who's not an antitrust expert because saying, oh, you shouldn't be able to take a ULCC. If I took my antitrust brain out, I would be like, yeah, absolutely. Like, why should Louis Vuitton buy dollar store? Like, they're going to raise prices. That's terrible. And it sounds bad, but from an antitrust perspective, which is focused on consumer harm and which is very rigorous in these types of things, there's no actual antitrust issue there, right? So, like, competitors can come in. We live in a vibrant economy, especially airlines. Like, what's Buffett's favorite famous quote? Airlines is where money goes to die, and it's because the ease of entry and the fixed costs are so high here. And, you know, if you think about it 30 years ago, there was the Southwest effect. Southwest was this this maverick coming in and slashing airline flights. Then 20 years ago, it was the JetBlue effect. And then today, it's the Spirit effect. Like, it is a vibrant industry filled with competitors, and Allegiance come in, Frontiers come in. There's several other... Sunbreeze and a few others have come in. Like, it is a vibrant economy, and to shut it down just because you say... ULCC getting bought is bad, ignores how the government's supposed to work. It's very skeptical of markets. It's not how antitrust is supposed to work. For those that don't know, to what extent did the sort of the backlog of planes and the inability for the aerospace supply chain to sort of fill, you know, like Frontier said, we'll come in and we'll scoop up all the slots or whatever. I mean, they didn't say exactly that, but they said, we'll take as many as we can. To what extent did the inability of planes to get delivered play a role in the judge's decision? The judge certainly considered that. He considered it heavily, right? He basically said, I'm worried markets aren't going to function as well because you've got these supply-limited issues with planes coming into the ULCC market. But again, like, I hear you. We'd love to have tons and tons of planes, but that's not how antitrust is supposed to work, right? Whether JetBlue by Spirit or JetBlue and Spirit are separate does not impact the number of planes that are coming into the market. In fact, if JetBlue doesn't buy Spirit, there's a chance that Spirit liquidates and a lot of Spirit's planes might get bought by uh, foreign airlines who are going to fly them in more profitable foreign markets. So there might be less domestic planes. Uh, JetBlue and Spirit together do not have any like concentrated market share that would give them market power. That's what antitrust is supposed to look at. So the judge looked at that emotionally. You say, oh my gosh, like there aren't a lot of planes coming in, but that's not how it's supposed to work. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I don't know, man. I I thought you did really good work through this. So I appreciate you putting it out. And I guess it's just one of those things where sometimes things go against you, right? Yeah, you know, it sucks, but I thought what more might be more interesting for your listeners and what I'm really thinking about a lot is just like, as you said, you had it with Curate, like A, being public, but B, like just once you take it, when you take a big loss, like being introspective in everything and thinking about it, I, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there and I'm happy to talk through it with you. If you're interested or yeah. if your listeners will, or yeah, if well, not, that, we can just cut it off. No, man, that's what I had pinged you about and... You know, the thing that was difficult for me with Curate is, and it's part of why I have not pounded any tables since, no matter how many times 
I have said, do your own due diligence. Once what I was looking for broke, I was out, right? And then I got the emails months later from people that are like, what do you think? I think it's still cheap. And, you know, my answer was like, I think you should do your own work and figure out what you're looking for and get out when you want to get out. And to watch what has happened since, you know, has been tough on me for a number of reasons, not least of which is I actually do like the people at Curate quite a bit. I mean, I know the CEO now reasonably well. He's a great guy. And to feel, even though I disclaimed and have encouraged people to do their own work, to feel somewhat responsible for leading them to, to that outcome you know, it was not the easiest thing for me to process. And I still think that being public has been a benefit, certainly to me, and I hope it has been to many, but the cost of it sucks at times. Yeah. Look, I'm with you. I prefer to think like, like yet another value podcast is an hour long deep, mostly an hour long deep dive into, into stocks, into a single stock. Like I hope that people are listening to it or actually listening to it because they enjoy fundamental research and want to do it on their own. And that type of stuff. But I hear you. There are people who are going to listen and just be like, oh, smart person X <laughs> can talk about something for an hour. Let's buy it, YOLO it, and not do any research. And you know, I just claim nothing we're talking about is investing advice or anything, but I hate that. I hate like getting something publicly wrong. I feel really stupid and I feel bad for people who I brought the idea to or who listened to me. You know, I hope they did their own research and knew the risks and like kind of sized up what they were doing. But I know that for some people that probably unfortunately wasn't the case, but yeah, it just, it sucks, man. It sucks. Yeah. I, I don't know what else to do. One of the, I, one, I do, one of the nice things of your outcome, Curate was kind of a slow bleed of bad news after a lot of good news. So at least with this, it's like, it's over, move on to the next one. Figuring out the trickle of when you want to change on an idea is, is not the easiest thing. Right. I was long airlines going into COVID, but that's easy. Like, I mean, it wasn't at first. Actually, that's a scenario where being public really helped me. I had mentioned in like, I don't know, it was early March or whatever, when COVID headlines came out, I said that I bought more Delta. And there was a guy that used to be on Twitter. He's probably still there, but he changes his handle a lot. And he was like, this is the first stage of taking a loss. And I really like reflected on that and flipped the next day. I mean, I wrote about it and I was like, this guy is right. But it's interesting. Do you think that being public on something makes it harder to change your mind or do you think it doesn't impact you that much? Oh, I think it definitely makes it harder. That said, it's a real double-edged sword. It's really tough. It makes it a lot harder to change your mind because you're out there, you've put your thoughts in there, it starts calcifying them. And, you know, when something goes against you, you kind of like your first thing is to double down and be like, oh, no, I was right. Like the market's just too short for Miranda. It's a real double-edged sword. And I know I talked to some very smart people who I'm like, I'd love to have you on the podcast. We talk all the time. So they're like, dude, I love the podcast, but I can't do it because if I do, I'm going to commit myself too much to this position. But the counter is being public. Like, I know I talked to a lot of regulatory experts. I got a lot of feedback from people on both spirit and other things I'm long where if you're public, you become like, and you've got a decent enough profile, you become a nexus of information. And I think that can be really, really useful. And you become a nexus of information in a way you never would if you were not public on it. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think your podcast is one of the single best sourcing of interesting ideas to listen to is how I would frame it. But like, I love what you do. And I got to imagine that the benefits have been 
pretty good for you from a networking perspective. No, it has. I mean, I'm sure yours has for you too, but it, it's been great for me for a networking perspective. And, you know, it's great from a networking perspective. It's really helped me do diligence in my ideas. Like, it's not the same talking to someone on the phone, calling them up and being like, let's talk for 30 minutes about this versus they come on the podcast and just having a free-flowing discussion. I just find it a lot easier to ask really stupid questions because I can be like, I'm, I have to ask this for the listener, even if it's a very basic one. It's been great for due diligence. And I write a pretty concentrated portfolio. It's also been great for my sanity, just being like, hey, I'm probably never going to buy, you know, I do 50 episodes a year. I'm probably not going to buy 49 of these, but it's 49 new things to research and stuff, which, you know, running concentrated portfolio, there's uh, it's a lot of research and not a lot of swinging. Yeah, well, it forces you to turn over stones, right? Yeah, and, you know, it's stones that uh, I hope everyone I have in the podcast is pretty smart. Like, my rule for the podcast is if somebody's paying you to invest, then who am I to say it? you're a smart investor or not, like you are a professional investor. And as long as you feel like value oriented, you're a podcast candidate, but hopefully all of them are quite smart and they put money behind it. Even if I don't want to, they have. So who am I to say this idea doesn't work for me or not? Let's do some work and figure out if I want to take a look at it or not. Yeah. I, I like that approach. I think it's hard to, I, I have had some guests on and, and look, when I, I think with social media and with inbounds and stuff like that, it's a very self-selecting, usually, group of people that make negative comments. And I don't even think that they're trolling or anything like that. I do think that I probably let it get to me a little bit too much. But there have been a few times when people are like, why is this guy on the podcast? And my kind of basic take is along the lines of yours. It's like, look, I want to make sure that they're legit and they have their own skin in the game here. And I'm not trying to have, you know, most of it is through referral, right? Unless it's like a friend of mine. But outside of that, I don't know how much of a responsibility I have to due diligence people and request, you know, backup for why they're worthy of being a guest. But it's an interesting sort of conundrum. It's a tough one, but I will say, I mean, runs 5 million or 10 million. But if you were just like flat out cutting people off because you didn't think they're worthy, like some of the best guests I've had, have been people I didn't know that well that run small funds. I kind of would have been like, oh, I don't know, this isn't that great. And then I had one like, oh my God, that guy was so good. His thought process was so good. I did not realize, and they're incredible. And then some of the worst guests I've had are honestly people who are running like hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And everybody's like, this guy's so sharp. And then I have them on and it's like, oh, okay. This guy's long like Berkshire, Apple and American Express, and maybe that's good, maybe that's not. But once you start talking to him, he's basically just like, oh, Buffett's really smart, and he's invested in these, and I'm following the Buffett principles. And you're like, oh, that's not really that thoughtful. And, he, you know, he hasn't done a lot of research. And I don't know, I, I just find if you're like, take a shot. Again, somebody's paying people to, to run their money for them. Like, somebody thinks these guys are smart. They're doing something like it. It, they're professional investors, you know, who are we to say they don't live up to the standard of what we want to do unless they're like running a, you know, I don't think either of us would have like a technical analyst on the podcast or something to have a great, like, that's just a different game. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I should be more selective. I, I don't think you should. I, I just think it's an interesting tidbit of being a host, right? Is like, how do you source people and how do you think about who warrants being on the program? But you know what I worry about? If you get too dogmatic about who can come on, it reinforces the power. Like, one of the things that I enjoy about 
the podcast and, you know, FinTwip for lack of a better term, is there's some guys out there that deserve a shot to market themselves, but for some reason they're just not very good at it or they haven't been able to like tear down the barriers. And to a certain extent, we can democratize some of that. Yeah. Look, it's also, I think if you're very extroverted, both that you and I certainly lean more to the extroverted thing, you will get more guest requests and like you, probably more podcast appearance and people might think you're smarter. But you know, a lot of these people, a lot of people are more introverted. And I think those people can make really thoughtful guests, but they never get a shot unless somebody's putting them out there. And yeah, maybe their podcast isn't quite as engaging, but a lot of times the thought process is a thousand times better and you can learn something really interesting from them. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Unrelated to podcasts, one thing you said earlier that I've been thinking about a lot in the wake of Spirit is the binary versus the bleed out, right? Like with Curate, you had a bleed out. Every quarter, subscribers were a little worse and the thesis was changing. And I, I've certainly had a lot of, like my biggest losers have tended not to be binaries. It's when I bought something for one thing and like, you know, I bought it because I thought it was going to, it traded at 30 and I thought it was going to get out, bought out 40 for 40. And then two years later, it's trading for five. And I'm like, it's a value turnaround play. Like that's really tough. But that versus... You know, when you buy, if you buy a great business, you've got time on your side, right? Where it's not the binary, it's going to crash. But if you have one hiccupy quarter, like the value still accrues. And just thinking about that versus a binary where you're either right or wrong, you're in or out. It's just like, you know, what's the better model for looking at businesses and finding the right mispriced bets? I don't have a good answer for this. I think that it helps to have what I have found, at least for me and you know, I don't know. I may end up indexing when it's all said and done. But what I think helps is to have, like with Curate, when that fire hit the facility and like my number one thing that I was concerned about was does the customer cohort stick? And once I had two quarters of the customer cohort, like mm. not sticking, if I was going to stay in that bet, I felt like I had to get out. And then if I still wanted to be in, re-underwrite what the new thesis was. But like staying in it and rethinking the thesis has never really worked out for me. I like that. Yeah. One of the things I've been thinking about it is Charlie Munger talked about Bayesian probability a lot. And, you know, you're following the decision tree and I tend to have trouble averaging up. And I like what you're saying where, hey, this has changed. Get out and reassess, re-underwrite and decide where you are. And some of the best people I know, like Jeremy Raper is so good at this. When some really good news comes out and the stock's up 20%, so like, I'm buying more because this is so confirmatory of the thesis, I'm buying more. Or when really bad news comes out and the stock's down 20%, he's like, thesis broken, done, exited, can always revisit if I want to, but I'm out. And I tend to be the opposite where I'm like, oh, it's up 20%. Let's take some profits. Like, let's reassess it when it's down 20%. I'm like. Well, you know, I thought it should have been down 10%. Let's uh, down 20% buy more. And I'm trying to get better about like reassessing the Bayesian probability and just like ripping the bandaid off when needed and pr pressing. Now, there, there's counters to those too, but it, it's just, as you said, when the thesis is broken, just like out re-underwriting, I think can save a lot of money. Yeah, I do too. And, and I think it also depends, you know, what's the capital structure of the business, what's the industry structure, all that stuff. But I, I agree with you. I mean, so a harder one would be something, my perception of what like Ball Corporation is going through right now, where I think that they over built some capacity 
and now you've got like softer margins. That seems like a normal sort of cycle within a business that I could live through. But if somehow like they ended up losing a major customer or something like that, that I think would be a non-starter for me. Like Ball Corp. I think what's going on there is they invested a little bit. As an industry, it's too much capacity. I may be wrong on this completely, by the Mm -hmm. way. I I just kind of look at it. But like that would be something that I would understand a little bit better. But if they lost a major customer or something, that would be like a non-starter. Or a sell and revisit. Yeah. 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 Because you're going to have lulls, right? It's like owning an insurance company and all of a sudden the insurance market goes soft. I mean, if you're really going to own those businesses, you have to expect cyclicality. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. It's also tough, though, because the insurance business, the cycle goes soft. And then, well, no, it's not that tough in an insurance business or ball. But I agree with you when you have something like that's different than cyclicality, a customer loss or something like that is just completely thesis changing. You've got to re-underwrite. Yeah. So I don't know. We'll see. I think one of the things that's nice about what you focus on with defined catalysts, maybe it's a little bit more yes or no. Am I right? I think that's right. And I do think that's also, it it does lend itself to thesis creep, right? Because defined catalysts, hey, I think this is like, I tried to do fundamental work too, obviously, but hey, I think this is trading at 20 defined catalysts and it's going to 30. A lot of times the defined catalyst doesn't happen, but you're still like, oh, I've got this fundamental value left, or maybe I was just a quarter too early. It's tough. It's yeah. tough, but yeah. All right. The other thing that's hard just in the wake of spirit is you have a big loss and like making sure you're not a poker player going on tilt, you know, like you want to reassess and learn from the loss. But I, I do worry about going on tilt and being like, hey, you can go two ways, right? You can go way too aggressive and just double down on everything. Or you can go way too conservative and be like, I can't swing. I'm a loser. I suck. And like both sides are really bad for you. And just trying to think through that. It's hard, man. Investing such a psychological game. Yeah. Yes, it is. I mean, how do you manage that? You know, I've been trying to. So after spirit, and I, should, I try to do this after big wins too, but after big loss, like I try to look at everything in my portfolio and re-underwrite it. I used, I've used re-underwriting a lot. But then I called like a lot of sharp friends who are in the names that are similar to me. I'm like, look, in the wake of spirit, I, I'm trying to mentally look at all my positions and just go through the thesis again. Be like, hey, does this deserve to be a bigger position? Or should I not be in it at all? I'm just trying to re-underwrite everything and think it through. And I'm just hoping you would you talk through it with me because I just want to make sure I'm not a poker player going on tilt here and trying to double down or not swing at something because I'm having a bad run. Like, I don't think he would mind saying this. Kyle Mallory, who I know you had on to talk about staff, and I'm waiting for that podcast to drop, is a friend. So yesterday I called him and we talked for like 45 minutes about a related SAF play. And I was like, hey, like, I think this is so, so good. I just want to talk through it with you and make sure I'm not like a poker player. Again, poker player pressing. I'm down because of spirit. I'm trying to like, you know, swing too hard and really risking something that I shouldn't be risking. So just doing that type of stuff. Yeah. Well, I apologize. I was waiting for his approval to send it to you. And then I got it last night. So I just kind of released it today, but it's out. Oh, did it release today? Okay. Yeah. I will be listening to it. Did y'all mention the individual company or just the staff market overall? No, we mentioned a few of them, Darling and Calumet and Lanzajet. So there were a few that were mentioned. I think we steered clear of recommending one or the other. Okay, cool. 
cool. I won't say anything more than unless you want me to go into, you know, the ones that I love. I am happy to dive into it. Well, if you want to, you're free to might as well get back on the horse. Okay. Well, yeah. So I I guess disclosure, I'm quite well on Calumet. I I think it's awesome. I know you got some Twitter feedback on it recently, but happy to talk through that. But yeah, look, Calumet has Montana Renewables, MRL. I think it's going to be the premier SAP facility in the United States. When I look at it, I just think there are so many ways to win with it just because MRL is going to be such a crown jewel. And we can talk about, you know, SAF is the biggest bull case. They're going to be, I think they'll be the largest producer of SAF in the next two years. I think the facility will be the largest producer of SAF, and that's going to be such a bull win and it's going to have such tailwinds. But what I love about it is, hey, let's say I'm wrong about SAF. Cool. They go to renewable diesel. I still think this project works really well. Uh, so you have to break both the SAF and renewable diesel markets. Like uh, Warburg Pink has put in a $2 billion valuation. I, this thing's about to be, it, in December, it was fully operational. I just think there's like multiple ways to win. And I have a lot of trouble really breaking the Calumet thesis short of, hey, you know, it has happened in refineries before where, hey, this entire facility exploded. Like short of that, which is a risk, you know, it's a risk. There are businesses you can do like, if you buy Walmart, you don't have, hey, this one facility blew up because you've got, what, like 5,000 stores. Like, you, you don't have that big risk. There is that single risk. But aside from that, it's really hard for me to break the Calumet thesis. Yeah, I think that the two questions, I guess, that I would have is they have had operational problems in the past. That's Somebody said that, which I think is true. And then two, you know, Diamond Green Diesel is going to have more scale. So what do you think about Calumet is going to make it like a crown jewel asset in SAF? Well, so, I mean, there's nothing that says two facilities can't be crown jewels, right? Like Diamond Green Diesel and and MRL. And then to my understanding, it's those two. And then you try and find the next SAF player and, you know, you're four or five years and there's nothing. So I think the SAF demand is going to be enormous. And there's nothing that says you can't have two two crown jewels in the industry, but I look at MRL, I look at where they're located, I look at all the access to feedstock they have, like, this is going to be a really, really good facility. And that's what I would respond to that, you know, like Comcast and Charter both have really nice cable businesses. The fact that Comcast is better run than Charter's doesn't mean that Charter doesn't have a really good cable business, right? And yeah, I think that's the case for the SAF market's going to be so big. I think that's the case for Diamond Green and Calumet. And then on the operational side, I definitely hear you. Calumet not a big a fan as Calumet's like legacy business as I, I think some people are. So they've got the specialty and performance brands. I mean, they're fine. I think specialty is actually a little bit of a below average specialty business. Performance is fine. I'm not as big a fan, but you know, the, a lot of the operational issues were under the old management team. On the MRL side, I, I think I, I've talked to a lot of like real experts, engineering experts and stuff here, and they Love the MRL plan. There's always operational hiccups, but they ran at full speed ahead in July. They ran at full speed ahead in December. Like, I think those are behind us. And I think the new management team is doing a really nice job here. So I hear all those issues. Oh, and also, look, Warburg, before this thing even started up, Warburg wrote a check into it at a $2.2 billion valuation. And not to be like, oh, these guys did due diligence, so I don't need to. But they saw the value here, and they're a third party who also has put rights, right? So they can force Calumet to monetize they have input like I think that everything's setting up well for them 
I, I mean, it's interesting that the CEO bought calls that expire next January. Oh. I think it's interesting that the family is converting and taking warrants at 20. There's a lot of little clues that, I mean, I think it's, I don't know that it's my favorite thing in the world that they put out a slide that they think it's worth between 31 and 50. But, you know, at a minimum, it shows that a lot of people are thinking about how are we going to maximize value here? So that's why I called Kyle and I was like, hey, man, I just, I'm really thinking about this because if I, if somebody came to me and was like, hey, you've got this company where they've got a subsidiary that they're committing to IPOing, that's someone valued at basically the market cap today, their stake, right? When they wrote a check two years ago before it was commissioned. And then this year, uh, the, the GP, like I think did a very generous conversion. And as part of it, they took warrants that are plus 20%, three-year warrants that are plus 20% from today's share price. And the CEO bought leaps that expire one year from today at $20 and the stock's at 16. If you rolled all that t- together, be like, oh yeah, they're going to monetize MRL. Oh, and like everybody's pushing for MRL monetization. Warburg has MRL monetization rights. Be like, oh yeah, this is really clear. They're going to monetize MRL and everybody sees the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And they're getting greedy with it, right? They're playing really hard for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And that's what I see. And I've done the work. I see the same pot of gold they see. They seem aligned to realize that pot of gold. It seems very incentivized. Oh, man. Yeah. And why does the opportunity exist? It's in an MLP structure right now. Nobody wants to look at this thing. Nobody wants to touch it. it. Yes, the taxes are hairy, but the upside is enormous. Yeah, I think the one skeptical thought that I have in my head is if it's such a good opportunity, why are they so excited to exit it? You know, you'd have to speak to them, but they've been here for a long time. Calumet, you know, the MRL, they very much lucked into, right? Very much lucked into it. They did this huge upgrade of the legacy refinery, and it turned out to be perfectly located, the perfect upgrade for renewable diesel. But Calumet almost went bankrupt, right? Like, I think this thing was a disaster. They put it into an MLP structure. A refinery should never have been in an MLP structure. It, it's just absolutely crazy. Well, it they originally wasn't, the right? Big... And then the CEO went out and bought refineries, right? I thought yeah. that was how it went. But I'm just saying, yeah, it, they never should have had these in an MLP yes, structure. Because I agree with you. Everyone, including the GP, was reliant on the dividends here. My understanding is that GP was quite reliant on the dividends, and they had to cut the dividends because guess what? Refineries are cyclical. And when the cycle goes down, you can't make these ever-growing dividend cash flows. So I just think everyone's aligned. And the reason that the GP kind of wants to get out is it almost went bankrupt. They almost lost the whole thing. And now they're like, hey, maybe we'd be better taking this fortune that we have in Calumet, selling it. And you know, we were relying on dividends. We're running foundations. Let's, let's put it all into dividend paying, uh, diversified basket and dividend paying stocks. Uh, I'm simplifying. I can't say exactly what their incentives are, but that... That line of thinking strikes with me. Yes, that is a plausible explanation that I think is more probable than not. If you were a wealthier person that gifted some charities an MLP unit, and those charities were people that you bumped into, and then the MLP unit stopped paying the dividends, and then, you know, especially in these yield codes, it kind of becomes self enforcing where the stock gets sold off. Now you're going to your favorite charities and they're saying, why in the heck do I have something that doesn't pay me and the stock's not worth something? I could see a scenario where you're just kind of tired of dealing with it and want to be done with it. I heard of one GP, that one family that controlled a GP, and they had to cut the dividends off. And when they cut the dividends off, you also have to cut off your incentive payments as the GP. 
And basically they had charitable commitments uh, from their family foundation that they pretty much had to cancel because the dividends weren't coming and the IERs weren't coming. And you could imagine a Calumet, like when the dividends are cut, hey, we've got a foundation that relies on these dividends and they're gone. You know, what are we doing? We're, and now they own this thing that's got this crown jewel that I think would be very valuable to a bunch of strategic buyers. But like the cash flow gush, it, it's coming. But in terms of like huge dividends that could refund all these charitable things or let you live off, those are still several years away because they're going to have to delever and they're going to have to invest in max F. Like you can imagine, hey, sell this for a huge premium to a, a ton of different players would want to take this out, in my opinion. Sell this for a huge premium, move on. And I think everything they've done suggests that's the route that they want to go. Yeah. I mean, this sounds silly, but how much, you know, I read through the municipal bond, the S1 issuing for MRL. Mm hmm. And like, how much fudge factor is in S1s, do you think? And the reason I ask is if there's not, I think people might be interested to crack open the S1. I mean, look, we, you and I both lived the SPAC boom. I think the, the first thing we talked about was I came on with the SPAC boom. And I was like, these SPACs are, tell me if I'm wrong on the podcast. It was three years ago. But I was like, these SPACs are insane. The projections are crazy. But you can buy them at trust value, and if the market wants to YOLO them, like you're getting a really advantage bet. But we all remember the SPAC market and the booms. Like I think you have to take everything with that healthy grain of salt. But I will say, like you open the S1, I mean, you have to bet that the max stack happens and the expansion happens. But every assumption that they made in the S1, when you compare it to, you mentioned Diamond, you compare it to what Diamond and Darling are putting out, you compare it to industry, like nothing that they've said looks materially different than anyone else in the industry is projecting. And obviously, like, look, the, the big bear case here is a lot of this, SAC, renewable diesel, everything, these are politically driven, subsidy-driven earnings. And I think the best bear case is, hey, subsidies can change in a heartbeat, yeah. right? Yeah. Today, the pushback to that is these are these have been designed and implemented over years. And I think if you look at something like ethanol subsidies, once you get a subsidy, it's really hard to take it away, particularly in swing states with politically motivated voters. I tend to think they go up, not down, but that's your risk. But you know, with the subsidies we're seeing in place, yeah, I don't see anything that makes me think these S1 numbers are crazy. Actually, I think they're kind of conservative. Yeah, so we're looking at, it appears, and maybe it doesn't turn out to be this, but you're looking at Trump-Biden, right? Biden, mm -hmm. I, I don't think, has any incentive to roll back any of the IRA anytime soon or any incentives that, I mean, they're reviewing the liquefied natural gas facility right now because they're worried that it's too carbon intensive. So carbon intensity is clearly something that's on their mind. And, you know, Trump, I don't think he minds being disliked by those that dislike him. I, I can't think anybody actually likes that, but he's he's fine playing the heel. But it would be shocking to me if he were to roll back subsidies among his real base of voters. I, I think that he cares about his legacy, and I don't really see any incentive for anyone to step up and be like, hey, these are where we're going to cut. But I, I could be way wrong on that. But I just, it's hard for me to think of. I think like MRL stands for Montana Renewables. Montana is not a huge swing state, but you know, there's going to be a Senate race there. Once you, you've got the whole industry at this point is aligned and in trying to put SAP, push SAP, right? Everybody's behind it. 
farmers are behind it, uh, energy companies are behind it. Like it, it's really tough for once you get all those constituents in place, it's really tough for one person to just come out and change that. Like I tend to think that the ball's behind this and it's too late to change it. And yeah, look, the reason SAT rings with me so well is unlike everything else, if you want to decarbonize air travel, SAP is sustainable aviation fuel. We, we talked really quickly into this. Um, yeah. Well, people if, had, if you people wanna, got the pod with Kyle for background yeah. if they want it. If you want to decarbonize air travel, SAP is the only option, right? SAP yeah. is a renewable fuel, low carbon intensity that you drop into existing airplanes and you can use. There's just no other way. You know, cars, you can electrify. We can argue if electrification makes sense or not. I, you know, I actually think renewable fuels are lower carbon intensity right now, but maybe that's not the case 10 or 15 years from now. But you can't electrify an airplane. I, I think, you know, for every two pounds of fuel on an airplane, I think there'd be 100 pounds of battery for equivalent power. Is this that I saw? Like you couldn't take an air, you couldn't take a aircraft off the ground with that much. So the only way you're going to do it is SAF. It's to say nothing of the fact, hey, how are you going to get, you know, how many planes are in the U.S.? 5,000? How are you, probably more? How are you going to get 5,000 planes from, you know, jet fuel to electrification all at once? You, you simply can't do it. SAF is the only answer. And that's what I like about SAF. So I think even if you ignore the subsidies, I do think there's going to be a lot of industry participants. Like if the subsidies went away, I wouldn't be surprised if, I'm hypothetically in this, but like FedEx, right? I wouldn't be surprised if FedEx was like, hey, we're going to go work out a deal with Microsoft and Google where all of the deliveries we do for them are going to be zero carbon and we're going to use SAP for that. So we'll pay a big premium for SAP just for that because even without the government, I think a lot of companies want to push this green thing. So I think B2B market would actually be huge and I, I don't think we're going there. You know, Europe is doing lots of subsidies. Like, I think MRL and the diamond stuff are going to be crown jewels across the globe. So you could transport it to Europe. There's just a lot of options there. Yeah, I can't help but think that Delta owns a refinery. And I can think of some big logistics company on the West Coast that may want to market that they have the most green fleet in the world. But we'll see how it all turns out. Yeah, yeah. And Delta, I believe, is one of the three companies who's buying from MRL, if I remember correctly. So they've already got that relationship, too. Yeah. I, I mean, look, it's possible that consumers don't actually care about climate change in the end. But I think that's probably. But that's why I think the B, that's why I think the B2B backup is so big, right? Because mm -hmm. even if consumers don't like you would have that put option to just go B2B on it. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And I also don't think that you're going to be filling up a plane with only SAF, I think it's likely to be blended into to gas, and then you get into what percentage is it? I mean, by definition, there's just not going to be enough SAF that it's a high percentage of total fuel used, at least not in the next three years. No, and that's why I love it. Like, I think there you've got a very limited supply, and I think there's going to be a lot of demand, right? B2B might want to greenwash with it. I think there's going to be lots of subsidies available for consumer airlines to start experimenting with this. And, you know, the best place to go is going to be Montana Renewables, in my opinion. Well, I hope you're right. I, this is probably the most speculative, you know, idea that I have embraced in the recent past. However. Uh, oh, you know, it's interesting. I don't know. Again, I've got a big position. I, talk about i just i don't know why do you think it's so speculative I, I don't um, you don't have a year of earnings from it well i i think that it is hard to have super high conviction on what saf looks like 
once it starts to actually sell in the market and where it could i i just think the numbers are a little bit fuzzy but i think that if well if, if what people are saying is true i think the probability that there's not a pretty big shortage is very low so i hear you but like again what i like about calumet is i think sap is going to be huge right but i think you get multiple i think you have like multiple margins of safety let's say everything you you and i just said on sap is just completely wrong well instead of making sap you can just make renewable diesel with the whole thing and you can run all of montana renewables on what the renewable diesel margin looks like and like when i do it i, I don't have my slides or anything in front of me but you know once they fully expand this thing I think Montana Renewable would be doing well over $300 million in EBITDA just on renewable diesel. And that would be with come with very good cash flow because this is a completely new facility. So it doesn't really need a lot of CapEx in the next five years. So the, the cash flow would be insane. And, you know, I think it'll be a premier facility for that. So even if SAF doesn't, all of the stuff we said with SAF doesn't play out, you can still go renewable diesel. And I think you would make a, a decent bit of money. And you know, it would take away a little from the margin of safety because renewable diesel is a more competitive landscape. But I still think this would be a premier renewable diesel facility and you would make plenty of money just on that. And yeah. Our friends at Mason Turner and company, the consulting firm that is cited in the S1, I'm mm -hmm. pretty sure that they have sustaining CapEx around 0.7 million. Is it a month? It can't be a month. I think it was five million per year, which would kind of one, but yeah, look, that's I, the turnaround, I think. But yeah, anyway, I don't think that, it's not a massive number, is all I'm saying as a percentage so, of EBITDA. I think that is for the next five years. Yes, I mean to twenty twenty. I, I could be, I could be wrong, but I mean these facilities. This is a you know five hundred million plus facility. I mean the cost in here is actually way over a billion. It, you're not going to run this on. Five million per year of maintenance capex, like in 2028, 2029. Yes, agreed. Big turnaround. Like it's not permanent, but the next four years, the cash flow is going to be crazy. And if you really want to be crazy, okay, let's average the maintenance capex over the next ten years. But the cash flow, if we're anywhere close to the economics I'm seeing and I'm thinking, it's going to be huge no matter what. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, the exact paragraph that I'm thinking of: total ongoing expenditures through 2027 are estimated by MRL staff at 37 million. The single largest annual item is $5 million for catalyst changeouts. And then they have sustaining CapEx at $0.7 million. So to your point, eventually, I mean, it, it, Kyle talked about it. It's a very caustic process. You're going to have to invest eventually. It's not going to be materially under depreciation. But the front years it, could be interesting. Are your listeners, they're going to prepare in like the first 15 minutes. It's going to be us like flagellating myself over save and going into a, a busted <laughs> legal process. And then like two minutes on portfolio management and thinking through it and then 30 minutes on hey the SAF podcast that Andrew hasn't even listened to but he's done a lot on let's talk some more SAF and you're gonna have to listen to how you met pitch yeah well you know and not too long ago they had to listen to me talk about how I don't like the pressure of being public on ideas but you know I don't know man this stuff I love this stuff it makes me interested I, one of the things that I like so much about SAF and this is an emotional issue that may be coloring my perception of reality but I, I like investing in the future. And I know that's sort of silly to say, but like, I do think this is where the world is going. I do think political incentives will lead to, <clears throat> it reminds me a lot of Charlie Munger's like, tell me the incentives, I'll tell you the outcome. 
Mm-hmm. And I just don't see how short term the incentives are to make this these projects not work. I am open to the idea that in 10 or 15 years, we look back at a lot of government programs and say, boy, that was like a misallocation of capital. But I think that's a different discussion than this specific idea and the time frame in which it can play out. One of the many reasons I started getting so interested in Calumet was in the summer of 2022, I was riding my city bike around the city and United had taken out all of these ads all over the city with Oscar the Grouch. And I flew a United flight and like they had Oscar the Grouch too. And Oscar the Grouch, or he's the one who eats trash, right? Yes. He lives in a trash can. I assume he eats trash. I don't know. So he was the spokesperson and it was United just advertising all over the city with Oscar the Grouch as their spokesperson saying, hey, we're turning your trash into energy and we're doing all this sustainable stuff to go greener. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like, you know, this is an airline that's basing their entire marketing strategy on we're going green, we're doing all this sort of stuff. And not that is an investment thesis in itself, but it kind of hit me like, hey, everyone is aligned and like, whether you believe it or not, like everybody's trying to turn this into a marketing point. I think you're going to have the airline industry, the energy industry, like everyone's going to be pushing to be going greener and Calumet and MRL in particular are just like right at the center of that push with the best asset for it. Yeah. The other thing that's kind of interesting that to your point on the marketing, you know, I've heard and I haven't verified for myself, but I think it's true that the legacy airlines, the recent pilot negotiations have really put them from a scale perspective in an advantaged position versus JetBlue and Spirit and Alaska and all of the other sort of subscale carriers to the extent that like they may be able to charge you know, not necessarily a premium. I don't know that that's the way to say it, but I, but I could see them saying like, look, if we can buy some SAF and we can market ourselves as the greenest flights, our business customers, right? Like if, if you're JP Morgan and you already have this business relationship, you can now go out to your clients and say, and by the way, when our salespeople go out on the road, they're flying the most sustainable fleets that they can. Yes. Like yes, that yes. matters. I think Yeah. Th- that that's back to the FedEx example I was saying. Yeah. Like you go to Microsoft and Google, like Google says all of our energy is going to be green. Like, okay, what about all the packages and flights you you see? Like, it, it's going to be a marketing. It's going to be a sales pitch. I I think it, I think it's just right where the puck is going. And again, we've got a really we're not making to me a speculative bet. We've got like the best asset that's going to be insanely profitable in this world. Yeah. Well, I tend to agree with you. I guess when I said speculative, I just think it depends on a lot of incentives that I cannot, I can't disprove that the incentives won't change. I can just say that I strongly don't see how they will, but I'm open to the idea that they could. Unrelated to Calumet, but one of the reasons like we started talking and the conversation went to Calumet and going back to Spirit, like, you know, just, I think I'm going to do a blog post on this at some point, but the longer I do this, the more I'm like really good ideas are so rare. And like what Charlie Munger said and Warren Buffett with like punch card, I think they're right. And like, you know, I, I love to research and churn out ideas, but they're so rare. And when you find one, you have to swing hard. And like the reason spirit, I thought that was a really good idea. And maybe it was bad luck. Maybe as maybe in hindsight, it wasn't, but you know, you got to swing hard at it. And like Calumet, I think it's a really good idea. You know, you've got the GP, they take the warrants, you've got the CEO buying leaps. We've done all this work that confirms it. Like, I think it's a good idea. And I don't know, the, the more I do this, the more I'm just like, Hey, you've got to find 
not even one a year, like one every other year, everyone for the most part probably swings too much and doesn't swing hard enough when they find something good. I'm trying to wrestle with that and think that through. Yeah. I have pinged a number of people about Calumet and just been like, hey, you might want to take a look at this. What do you think? The number one thing that comes back to me, especially, I mean, it's people that run funds. I don't want to deal with a K1. Yeah. Which it's like the old, like, why does this opportunity falling into my lap? The answer is I don't have that constraint. And C-Corp conversions, you know, everybody says C-Corp conversions are the number one thing. And they're probably right. I mean, maybe the answer is to wait until March or April when the C-Corp converts. But, you know, I just, I see so much value here. And am I, for a big swing, am I really willing to deal with or talk to my partners and say, hey, we're going to have a little bit of complexity for a big swing that I think is going to generate outstanding returns. And uh, yeah, I, I think that makes sense. And I think most people I talk to when you, you go and explain that to them, but it's a little bit of an incentive issue, right? Like if you're in charge and you're talking to people and you're telling them that that makes sense. But you know, if you're like at a pod shop and you're the analyst who pitches it to a PM who pitches it to their PM, that might be a tougher thing, right? Because it's three degrees removed and then they have to go explain it to their LP. So like you've got four degrees removal, maybe that headache just isn't worth it at that point. Yeah, that's plausible to me. That's very plausible to me. And, you know, I mean, maybe you say, okay, well, I think a lot of this idea depends on the Department of Energy coming through with the loan that they're promising. And I don't like the leverage and the rates right now. So we'll wait until that loan gets done. Like, I don't know. There's a number of different, I think, things that you could wait for here. But like, what's the probability that the Department of Energy, the, what, were two years after the IRA passed officially? Like, this is- I mean, this is a real project that they can put real money behind. What's the probability they're like, no? So. I agree with you on the Department of Energy. I think they're going to get a big loan there. But my thesis does not rest on the Department of Energy. I think that you can make, if it rests with that, I would would not be in here. Like, I do think they're going to get that. But I would push back on, hey, and I push back to several people. Cool. You think a Department of Energy loan of, pick your number, $200 million, $500 million, a billion dollars is coming through. Go show me the last Department of Energy loan that was over $100 million. Like, show me one. Yeah. I don't think anyone can point to one since Solyndra. And Solyndra, Did you know, didn't out. exactly turn out well. Yeah. That's now, funny. I think this is completely different. And as you said earlier, there's a lot of incentives. Like, Montana, I think, has a swing state Senate seat up for grabs. Like, I think there are going to be a lot of incentives to get this done and have something that everyone can point to. Like, look. We're fueling the future in a swing state, jobs, 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 farmer jobs. But I don't rely on it. I think it's coming, but I, I certainly don't rely on it. I do hear people saying wait for that. And I know people have said like, hey, you, you buy this after the C-Corp conversion and after the DOE. And if the stock's up 25% between now and then, cool. It's completely de-risked. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, I mean, that would make sense. That's why I don't think I'd... That's why if it got cut in half, I don't know, well... I don't know on no news. I don't know what I do. The issue that I have is like when I do envelope math, it's hard for me to see too much downside here, but the leverage is a real issue. Well, there was in October, there was, the tough thing is if this sells off in October, this sold off and they even mentioned this in their earnings release and when they did the C-Corp, it sold off on pretty low volume, but went from like 16 to 1250 in a day or two. And the tough thing is <laughs> when you've got one asset like this, it's tough to buy more on a sell-off like that because yeah, you're not sure. Yeah, because you might hey, have a fire or something. Exactly. I wasn't sure, hey, is this a liquidation 
or hey, did somebody have somebody at MRL and they said there's a fire or there's an issue? And I, you know, you can call the company and be like, was there a fire? And they can generally say yes or no. But maybe there's some other issue that somebody picked up on. And that's just the tough thing about a one asset company. And that's really the biggest downside here. But I just the asset is so valuable that it overcomes that. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I, I thought, and you've had him on Exponential Fitness. What's his name? Why can't I think of it? Zach Buckley? Yes. What I like how Zach talks about one of the things he can do in consumer is when you have alt data and you see a sell-off like that, you can like pretty much know whether or not it's reasonable or not. And you know that's nice. Zach, Zach is extremely smart and does really well with it. And I certainly hear him. You know, I just... Alt data, the one thing I worry about is you get your face ripped off where the alt data is fine, but something else in the story has changed. So you can rely on the alt data and say, hey, you know, the alt data is fine. They're going to be good or better this quarter. And then what it turns out is, hey, it wasn't this quarter that was the worry. It was X, Y, or Z that's going to happen nine months from now that everybody's anticipating. But no, I, I hear, and obviously that's not a shot at Zach. That's just what yeah. I worry about with the alt data when you start using it. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking about it with the fire or something wrong with the facility, but. <laughs> that That's alt data, but you know, that's not same sort of sales plus one versus minus one. That's, that's right. same sort of right. sales down a hundred. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, with Calumet, like the other sell-off thing that worried me, and this would apply to the alt data thing too, right? You say, hey the alt data and take it out of consumer, take it to a hospital chain, right? And you say, we, we're we checking the alt data, claims are great, this hospital chain is going to have a great quarter, Calumet. Hey, MRL, there's no fire, there's no smoke, there's no nothing. You're like, okay, great. But there's something regulatory that's come down that someone's picked up on, yep. right? Like yeah. I, I know a lot of people were long, like Medicare stocks are the famous one where the quarter's great, but it turns out their reimbursement's getting cut by 50% next year. So the stocks are down... as people start picking up wind that it's in, you know, draft or something. And with Calumet, the other risk is, hey, it's down to 1250 because someone picked up wind that, you know, Biden's going to repeal the IRA or the, you know, the lender's tax credit is getting completely repealed and not replaced or something. And I think all of those would be overcomable, but obviously they would be hiccups in the short to medium term. Yeah. Well, all I can ask is if anybody listened to this and heard anything that Andrew and I said that was clearly wrong, please contact both of us. I think that's one of the major (laughs) reasons that we do this. I'd like to hear why, you know, this is a bad idea rather than why it's a good one. But if it's a good one, let me know. (laughs) know, I don't don't mind hearing informed confirmation either. It's always cool. Like I did a bunch of podcasts on Burford and it's always cool. Like there I'd have lawyers who are like, Hey, I did this big case with Burford. Let me tell you my honest opinion of them where I used to work there. And like, you, you really learn a lot about a company. Again, it's the power of having a public platform. There are downsides, but the upsides of having people reach out and giving you information you never would have gotten on your own, even no matter how hard you were kind of scrounging around is really cool. Yeah, that's right. Well, my phone is dying and I don't want it to cut off in the middle of the conversation, but I'm thankful that you came on and had this conversation. I did not expect to have a second SAF podcast, but here we go. (laughs) And, uh, you know, man, I just, to the extent it matters as a paying sub and as a fan of what you do, I really appreciate the, the work you put out there and I appreciated your reflection on the process. And I hope that it wasn't too tough on you, even though I know it's not, I know it was hard. 
Look, I really appreciate it. Appreciate your friendship. Appreciate the kind words. And I'm looking forward to seeing you. If they'll have us back, you never know. But if they'll have us back, look forward to seeing you at Markel. I hope they do have us back. Bob Rabati, holler at your boys. I, I, uh, we'll <laughs> see. I, I, I don't think Bob will mind me telling this story. So I put on the blog that I tore my pack and had pack surgery. And Bob responded. He said, did you get breast enlargement surgery? Hope it went well, recover quickly. I don't think he'll ever mind me saying that story, but I was just like, oh, Bob. Oh, that's funny. It, it, it really brought a smile to my face. And I was in, uh, it, you know, the 48 hours after surgery isn't great. So it really brought a smile to my face. So thank you for that, Bob. And I hope you don't mind me sharing that story. I don't think Bob will mind. Bob, Bob cracks me up, man. He's one of a kind. All right. We'll talk soon. All right. Thanks for coming buddy. on. Take yep, care of yourself. Absolutely.